Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. I heard you in the other room while I was uh, preparing here, uh, asking the crew questions. And I, you will not remember this, but many, many years ago on ESPN Radio, before Moneyball became what Moneyball was, right? You, you taught me, basically, things I did not know about baseball and helped me develop a relationship with Billy Bean, who gravitated toward the fact that I was talking on the big ESPN show, Pardon the Interruption, about baseball in a way that was different than the guys uh, who were there. So when you ask Chris Whittingham, our producer, are you uh, are you guys about sports, you will appreciate it as a storyteller that we were inside the machine at ESPN, but we were a comedy troupe disguised as a parody of a sports show showing everybody how stupid everything inside the machine was. And ESPN didn't even understand that that's what we were doing. Um, so I, I actually remember all of this. And I was just, in fact, I was just telling my podcast team as I was walking out of CBS this morning, this morning, that I was coming to do your show. And I was telling them about how you had been really the first one to pick up on Moneyball in, in a way that wasn't hostile. The, the, uh, you, you may not remember this, but when the book came out, it was like, I, it, I was in a war for six months and there was just mainly rudeness coming out of like the sports, the sports talk machine and sports journalism. And you, I remember the, I remember talking to you and you completely like understood what I was trying to do. Uh, so yes, I remember it vividly. I just couldn't believe what you had done, right? It, this began my admiration of you as a writer, just that you had nonchalantly entered what has been, you know, a world that me and my brethren had covered rather zealously. And you had just written a book of all the game secrets. And I was somebody who grew up on Bill James. So it's not like I wasn't mathematically inclined, but you somehow wrote a book and you've done this in your career now with Wall Street, with, I admire you so much as a writer because you can enter these worlds that are hard to understand and come away with secrets. I don't understand how you do that. I don't think it's that complicated. Um, I think the trick, if there's a trick, is just finding the right person to follow. And that, that the fact, once I was inside the Oakland A's front office, everything else was easy. Once I had that vantage point on it and I had Paul D. Podesta and David Forrest and Billy Bean, and then the whole geek squad around Bill James to sort of teach me, it was, it felt like, it felt like theft, it was so easy. I mean, I wrote that book from the moment I met Billy Bean to the moment the book comes out is a year, uh, which is like, it's fast even for me. And I'm pretty fast. It, it was that sort of teed up to be told. And I think I think that in that case, the, this, the, the thing that I had going for me is that basically all the sports journalism around, at least around them, 
had no interest in the money. Like they didn't even ask the question, like, how are you doing it with a quarter of the payroll? Uh, that people just, they sort of dismiss that as an interesting subject. Where does it rank for you on career achievement to see the whole sport changed by the book, <laughs> by the book it's, that you wrote that, that was, that was blasphemy when you wrote it. The, it's not just you, I explained to the audience how hostile the reaction was from sports fans on you saying, hey, there's an art to team building and these guys are exploiting mathematical inefficiencies. It was so there were two parts to the hostility. The major part of the hostility came from baseball insiders and by baseball insiders, I mean, people who were running the team, scouts and journalists who relied on them for their stories. And most of that was directed directly at, at Billy Bean. Uh, and the and the reason for that is in the sports world, people don't really acknowledge there's such a thing as an author. They sort of assume that Billy wrote the book, that if Billy Bean was the main character of the book, it must have been like an authorized biography. Didn't understand that Billy Bean didn't even see the book till it came out, had no idea what was in it. So, but but the, he got the heat. So it was, that was kind of great. So I got the benefit of the book and he got the heat for, for much well, of it. And they were but, criticizing something ha they hadn't read and didn't understand that you were basically writing. No, the, the secrets are not in a scout's gut on how to evaluate players. Uh, you, right. you really were blaspheming against the idea of faith with science. Like, and I don't, and I really want to know where does it rank on career achievements for you that you changed baseball? Um, I, I'd be a little more modest than that because I knew when the book was coming out that the Red Sox were about to do the same thing with a big pile of money. And so it felt to me like baseball was about to change. And if anything, I just gave it a little bit of a push and move a little faster because of the book. So I think that all of this would have happened. There was an inevitability about this that my, my timing was very good. So career achievements, I think of like, I think of the books a bit like I think of children that you that they they are. It's very hard to, to like rank them. I think of Moneyball was along maybe along with the Big Short and the new one that just came out, The Premonition. Were those were the three that were the cleanest in the in the story that, that where I sat down and I thought, oh my god, I got this all laid out. I know exactly how to do it. I know where it begins, where it, where the middle is, where the end, and I'm spoiled for choice and how to tell it. But in terms of the effect of the book, um, the Big Short had a had a, a different kind of effect. It was sort of similar in the world of finance and on Capitol Hill. That was, but but Moneyball's the most fun. That that's that it's the most fun because it was just like. You turn on ESPN for three years and people will be talking about the book. And that, that so that was kind of cool. But the 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 war, I didn't expect to get as hostile as it did in the very beginning. I didn't appreciate just how much trouble it would cause. And it caused trouble for a really simple reason. It caused trouble because the owners got their hands on the book, owners of baseball teams, and um, they looked down at their you know, former minor league player who was then running their team or their scouts and said, wait, wait, you guys are wasting my money. These people are actually doing it in a smarter way, in a way I understand. Uh, and it cost, you know, it's sort of people have had their jobs were threatened is basically what happened. And that, so that was the, the source of the hostility. And of course, who am I to say anything about baseball? The people, but I was a, I was regarded as an outsider who didn't, you know, what business do I have to be in the middle of this discussion?
do you look at it bemused and marvel at the stupidity in it that that the reaction to the book would be so zealously wrapped in a need for no i will hold on to the ignorance i have i don't need this person teaching me about baseball in a way that's more accessible than the way bill james does it because bill james's books were dry you uh and i envy your process incidentally the idea that you could sit down three times in your life and know you've got the book in your hands like know exactly that the puzzle pieces are all together and now all it is is you singing for the rest of the time that you're writing the book because it becomes a joy like i i can't imagine having that kind of confidence in the writing process i envy it i wish i had it so that that it is that it is like that it is like a joy it's like sitting it is like sitting down to sing um um, but I thought so. No, what's if, if I was surprised by anything, it was it was that the book got through to them. Because remember, I'm sitting there thinking, why on earth is nobody else paying attention to Bill James? I mean, Bill, when I wrote money, when I was writing Moneyball, Bill James was still unaware until I told him he was unaware that the Oakland front office had sort of like taken his the spirit of him into it and had read all the books and were trying to apply stuff that he'd done and extended. Um, so he, the view was that there was, I mean, it's weird. If you think of it, just like an industry, the view from the people who were generating new baseball knowledge outside of baseball, like Bill James and, and the younger crowd behind him, the baseball prospectus people, I think the view was like, oh, this is something that just sits outside the game. And yeah, we know more, but the people inside the game are never gonna pay attention to us. Uh, there was just a wall between the game and the research and development into the game. And the game itself, as Bill James, you know, as Bill James recently told me, he said, the difference between basically me and them was I I was thinking. And and they they just weren't thinking, they'd stopped thinking. And, and he said, why had they stopped thinking in the game? And they stopped thinking because they thought everything was known, that there wasn't anything new to find out. So it was it, the fact that that had been going on for what? the better part of 20 years, 20, it was more than 20 years. The first baseball abstract that he publishes is in 1977. So 25 years when I show up to write a book, I thought, well, if he didn't get through, I'm certainly not going to get through. So it surprised, it did surprise me that the, that it, that it, that the game took it in so fast. Just so that you know why it is that I was receptive to the book, uh, the earliest reading I was doing with my grandfather, memories, going to bookstores, was the Bill James abstracts, which were too complicated for me. I did, I could not reach them. So when I, in sports, would get whatever it was, 20, late 20s, early 30s, and I think I know everything there is that you need to know about baseball, and you're presenting me a book where it feels like fantasy. I'm like, how how is this person able to get into the bowels and the business of the game to explain to me wh why have the Oakland A's given away their secrets? Like, I didn't understand. Why would they not just keep winning 100 games a season with their three arms and interchangeable parts and going cheap? Why would they give you the winner's handbook to we're smarter than everyone else? Is Billy Bean so ego-soaked that he doesn't want to keep that secret anymore? So it's, it's funny. I, I, that was my one fear when I was writing the book. I, when, that when he read the book, that he'd be upset that I gave away the secrets. And I remember his response. Um, he was a little upset with the book at first, but for a completely different reason. When, and when he, he, he's upset because I had him cursing all the time. And he, he said, my mom's going to be furious with this. It was really funny, kind of funny. And I said, well, Billy, I thought you would be 
upset because here I've gone, gone and tried to give away all your secrets. And he said, look, it's been plain as day that we've been doing things differently than other teams since for a while. And nobody has seemed to care you writing about it. It's not like a book, a book is going to change baseball. You don't really think they're going to read your book. Uh, so he, he was pretty sure that, that no book would make any kind of dent on, on how baseball, other baseball teams operated coupled with that. You got to also remember that Billy was being courted by the Red Sox. Uh, and he knew that even if he didn't take the job and he almost did, uh, that, Theo Epstein or whoever it was who completely understood what he was doing in Oakland was going to take the job and the cat was going to be out of the bag that way. So I don't I don't think they thought they had any ability to really preserve their secrets, except that just the willful resistance of baseball insiders to think about anything new um, and that he thought he was relying on that to be um, to to get him through, I think. And so he really he just really thought that I'd have no effect. Um, and. I mean, the other thing is, he really didn't know what I was writing. I he what he, he was looking at this writer who's want, who I am spending a lot of time with him, um, but I also was to, went to go spend time with the Toronto Blue Jays and you know went and visited the Seattle Mariners and the Texas Rangers and the Red Sox, and so he sees me wandering around baseball, and he didn't really have a sense that oh, this thing is going to be I'm dead center in this thing uh, until he read it. How did it change your life? Only in one way, because I'd already had um, bestsellers before that. I'd already books. I had books that sold better than that book. Um, it it opened up sports to me as a subject. It made the Blind Side possible. It made a bunch of magazine stuff I've done possible. It made I could go knock on doors in pro sports and they'd open. And and by extent, and it did this other thing that up until that moment. Um, my publisher and probably by extension my audience had this sense of me as i don't know a financial writer or a business writer and i didn't have any particular interest in business and finance it was just an accident that i'd started my career working on wall street so that was the material i had um moneyball demonstrated that i could do other things and that and and from that moment on with the conversations like with my publisher or with editors at magazines nobody's even thinking like oh is he supposed to be writing about this so because he can obviously write about lots of different things um so it 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 showed that i i was more just like a general writer than some sort than a something writer than a business writer or a financial writer or whatever anybody was thinking of me so that that i knew that already but the success of the book just freed me up uh, a lot, a lot. Your original reporting job in Wall Street, you said it was an accident? Oh, I got a job. I got a job working at Solomon Brothers on the trading floor right out of school. And it was a total accident. I, I got the job. <laughs> I got the job because I had I, I was at a dinner where I was seated next to the head of Solomon Brothers International's wife. And she said, you got to come work for my husband. And I didn't have a job. So I said, sure, I'll come work for your husband. Um, and that I knew I wanted to be a writer at that point, but I had no idea to go, how to go about it. And so that, that put Liar's Poker was the book that came out of that, but that put me, I mean, gave me a ringside seat to the financial eighties, to the explosion on wall street that, all right, and funny, we were all still living with. And that material, it was so good, but the book like went to the top of the charts right away. And it set me up as a, I mean, I, that set me up as a writer, that material and that job, but that job was just an accident. I could easily have ended up doing one of 20 other things instead of that.
Well, what do you um, mean? But what do you mean you knew you wanted to be a writer, but you were jobless or uh, between jobs, scared? Like what was what was happening? What were you going to do with your career? The wind blows a different way and none of this stuff gets none of this stuff gets written. That's true. Uh, the wind blows a different way and none of this stuff gets written. Um, I I couldn't see. So I was not a person who like wrote for school newspapers or got, I didn't get A's in English. Nobody, nobody, no teacher said, oh, you're going to be a writer. None of that. Um, I got this Jones for it my senior year in college when I was working on a, um, a thesis to get out of college. It was like writing a book. And I fell in love with, with just total immersion in a subject and trying to, trying to bag it on the page, trying to capture it on the page. And I thought, how do I keep doing this? Um, and I decided that the way to keep doing it was just to be a writer and, but I didn't know how to do it. So I was, I willy nilly submit when I got out magazine articles to magazines, but it got rejected over and over and I needed to make a living, you know? Um, and I, so I was in graduate school at this point and that, that job the wall street job landed in my lap and it paid a huge sum of money and it just solved that problem. Like, what am I going to do while I figure out how to be a writer? And what I would do is I'd go to work on the trading floor in the day and go home at night and write magazine articles. And eventually they started getting published. Um, and eventually they started being magazine articles about the thing I was doing on the trading floor. And they got a lot of attention, got me in trouble with my employer too. Um, and and that led me to, 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 to leave and write a book. Uh, it was what, 27 years old. But uh, all of it, all of that is accident. The, the interest in doing it wasn't an accident. The commitment to do it wasn't an accident. I was going to find a way. I just didn't know what the way was. But the way it all starts is pure accident. I really, I mean, I could have been, you know, I don't know. I could have really ended up doing almost anything out of school. And maybe that would have been, I'd have written about something else to start. But I got very, very lucky. And you know what? That The, the reason Billy, I can remember when, Bill, when I called Billy Bean and said, I want to come talk to you about how you're running your team. And the reason he said yes was he'd read Liar's Poker. And he said, and when I showed up, he said, you might be someone who kind of gets what we're doing here because what we're doing here is just like Wall Street trading. We're thinking of the baseball players as financial assets. And I sit there, I'm sitting here just like these Solomon traders you described, trying to figure out what's cheap and what's rich and, and sell the rich stuff and buy the cheap stuff. You said trouble with your employer. Were you getting so close to the truth by being sort of just a, a curiosity? I'll tell you a story. Well, I just so, imagine, uh, I imagine, and please tell me all the stories, but I just imagine I can see you getting too close to the information just by being you and being curious. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, not exactly by happenstance, you're writing something from so deep on the inside that it's a little too close to the truth. So, of course, you can't work anymore on Wall Street. You're going to have to go independent at 27. So to understand the brief story I'm going to tell you, you need to know that basically the first thing that happened when I started working on the trading floor at Solomon Brothers, I was a salesman in London, the biggest essentially hedge fund, they didn't call them that, in Europe, the guy who ran it took a shine to me. And he took a shine to me because I called him and I said, I'm supposed to call you. This is like a cold call. I don't know anything, but if you need anything, give me a call. And he said, you're the first guy from Wall Street who's called me and said, you didn't know anything. And he said, come on over and have breakfast. And he said, he said, basically, I'll be sending all my business or much of my business through you. Just don't ever try to tell me what to do. So I had in my back pocket, 
I think at the time it was the second or third largest customer of the entire firm who would only talk to me. So I knew I wasn't going to get fired because I was making them. I mean, I wasn't doing anything of great value. I was just taking up the phone, executing the guy's orders, but we were making, <laughs> I mean, many millions of dollars. And so I felt secure, but then with that security, what I did is I wrote an op-ed in the wall street journal that argued that it, people on Wall Street were overpaid. And at the bottom of it, it said I worked at Solomon Brothers. And when I got to work the next day, the guy who ran the whole, inter the guy whose wife got me hired was waiting at my desk. And he was just, he he looked like he'd seen a, he was just white. He was, and he, and she kind of like upset. And he said, I've been up all night with the board of directors because this thing you've written in the Wall Street Journal is being reprinted all over the country. And you got all these people, our customers are calling saying like, you you guys are saying, your own people say you're getting paid too much. And I said, well, we do get paid too much. And he said, you can't say that. And I said, <laughs> and he was like, he was sitting, he was really sweet about it. He was sort of sat down with me, he, started, he was treating me as a problem, like with a solution. And he was saying, <laughs> he was saying like, what can we do to solve this problem of you wanting to write about this business while you're in the business? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm going to be a writer. I know one day I'm not stopping. And he finally said, okay, you don't have to stop, but could you keep the name of the firm out of it? And could you change your name so no one can trace it back to you? And I said, fine. And so we sat in studio, we, we, we cooked up a pseudonym. I, we used, we decided we'd use my mother's maiden name. My mother's maiden name was Diana Bleeker Monroe. So I was Diana Bleeker for a year and a half. And I would come to work having written something in the journal or the New Republic or whatever. And I would look across the trading floor and Diana Bleeker's articles had been photocopied and were on everybody's desks. And I realized that there were, people were laughing, people were, and I thought, oh my God, this is, it's like market testing, you know, I, that, that this is working, that the stuff that I'm writing, the people who I, they didn't know it was me, uh, they want to read it. Uh, so that, that is, and what would happen then one day, you know, the actor Chevy Chase, actor Chevy Chase has a had a father named Ned Chase, who is a big time, uh, publisher. He was a, he was an editor at Simon and Schuster. He found out Diana Bleeker was me. And he called me one night and he said, you got to write a book. Uh, and that's what got me thinking. I, I can get out of here and I can make a living. What a great story and horribly unethical of you. I don't, I can't believe I can, you, that you were writing under a pseudonym, these great truths from inside the machine. All of it is a great story. I don't know which part of it is best. The idea that you wouldn't be in a great deal of trouble for writing that and not like realizing that you'd be in a great deal of trouble for writing that. But the need inside you was you wanted to write. You didn't want Want to be well, somebody who traded commodities well so the funny thing was when i think about how it all played out it's hard to believe it's it is an act of stupidity on my part i kind of thought when i like wrote the thing in the wall street journal that everybody would think it was kind of funny and that that they'd be impressed that i would be like wow that's great you got an article in the wall street journal <laughs> that's not how they responded and i was just lucky that i had in my back pocket, this customer who that no would talk to no one else, who is like handing the firm millions of dollars. A year. Michael, you're one of the smartest authors I've ever read. I can't believe the intergalactic naivete and stupidity yes. in you thinking that you could work at a firm and write that and have the firm's name on it. I can't believe that the adult in you sitting before me right now would defend that. Well, I had I it is I do have 
these blind spots. And they every now and then they reveal themselves. It is an honest blind spot. Well, of course, once he told me that like, you ruined the firm, <laughs> you know, your article, you've ruined our lives. I was aware from then on that it was going to be not good. And, I, and from then on, I kept the firm's name out of it. Uh, but the things I was writing could only have been written by someone who was inside the machine. So uh, yeah, it was, that was a, it was a fun way to start a career. And I had, you know, it was funny. I'm sure first time authors are often very anxious, but by the time I'd finished that first book, because I'd seen the way it, it just popped with people on wall street, I knew that it was just going to pop. And I, I remember when the book came out, my publisher being just like in wonderment, calling me and saying, there was like a Barnes and Noble down on our, our back when there were bookstores down near wall street. And they called and said, they just sold like 500 copies in six minutes. And they're calling and saying, can we truck more down there? It was like candy. Uh, I, it, I, but I kind of knew that was going to happen because I'd watched it happen with the articles. Um, but anyway, apropos of what we started talking about, it was that book that was my ticket into the Oakland A's front office. Uh, that, that That's why they were willing to talk to me. I just can't believe, though, that you would I, I can't tell you how envious I am that you have a process that would produce for you the confidence of I'm going to write this. And I know a, a book making your living in writing. I'm going yeah. to write this and it's like I'm going to be giving out candy. People are not yeah. going to be able to buy the books <laughs> fast enough. It's infuriating. Like it's, I, I would enjoy writing so much more if I sat down knowing that. <laughs> I guess, you know. I have always trusted this comp this inner compass that and it's probably going to get me in trouble sooner or later and I guess it has gotten me in trouble sometimes but I, I it is true that when I find that I'm taking delight in what I'm doing the reader ends up liking it that if I, I, I my customer is myself that if I'm sitting there enjoying what I'm doing when I'm writing it it it, it comes through somehow my, my wife says I actually, I, I've tried to observe this, but I, it's hard to observe it. Oh, I bet, I bet you're better to be around when you're in this spiritual space. I bet that your wife notices and loves you a little extra because you're just <laughs> a happier you because you must spring through the kitchen every day to know yeah, well, that. There, there's some truth to that. But she also says that when she's been in the room with me, like we were in a hotel room and I've had to write something. She says, do you know that when you're writing, you're laughing out loud and and she guessed rightly that what I was basically laughing out loud is my own at my own jokes, right? It's not, it's embarrassing. But <laughs> apparently I'm sitting there laughing at my own jokes while I while I'm writing. And uh and that that was very, you know, it's not always jokes, right? I'm not like a humorist. So it's it's um I'm, it is I do take such pleasure in the in the process that that um I just, I don't, I, and I assume that if I got that kind of pleasure out of it, someone else can get that kind of pleasure out of it. So I don't, I don't sit around worrying too much. It's not that I don't worry about how the books do because the books, some do better and some do worse. And it is true that it's a, you know, a little bit of a nerve wracking process when a book comes out, but I kind of generally think eventually the people who are going to like this thing are going to find this thing because it gave me such pleasure. And so why shouldn't it give them such pleasure? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Check out the new season of his podcast, Against the Rules. Whittingham swears by it and the paperback release of the book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. You put it in your pantheon when you said, like, sort of uh, the book that felt the best to write, I guess, or the most fulfilling. This seems like it would be a book that is deeply unpleasant and dark yeah. and portends a, a much darker future than even Wall Street, never mind Moneyball. So a pandemic story, the premonition of pandemic story, this wasn't necessarily a joy to write or the discovery oh, was no. a joy? This is a horrible to say. It was a, it was a sheer joy to write. It was a joy. It, you got the book. So the book isn't there's a there's a book's a cheat in some in one way it isn't really about the pandemic because it's it ends in may of 2020 it ends the moment it's clear we've screwed up our response to the pandemic and the story is about these three or four characters who who were in various ways trying to prepare us for the pandemic and failed but this the, the their heroism from the previous decade the, the stories were just incredible what they what they had tried to do in their various ways to prepare the society for what was going to happen they didn't know it was going to happen but in case it happened um those stories were so good and the characters were so much fun that i uh, that i i was very i was i was very self-consciously happy writing the thing and i kept thinking why am i so happy like why is this so great like this, why is this story so great? It's such a miserable subject in some ways. And it was because I wasn't really writing about the pandemic. I was writing about these characters. I was writing about the best side of the of the country. Like they didn't get the attention they should have gotten when the thing, when, when it finally happened, they weren't, they should have been in the position to run the pandemic, but they, um, and it was even more so than Moneyball, even more so than the big short. It was the story that I felt, um, I was just a conduit for that. It, it was uh, that the, the stuff was the stuff that was coming out of the people I was writing about, and they let me in in such an intimate way. I felt I could almost write them like fictional characters, and I and I knew that unlike the Oakland A's and Moneyball, you can't pick up Moneyball and think it's a work of fiction 
uh, because you know, well, Billy Bean exists and you know that the Oakland A's are, you know, it's just, it's just this, that spell is broken right away or almost right away. Um, with this story, I could take get the reader with their jaw on the floor, 60 or 70 pages in, trying to decide whether, God, is this true? Is it true that a 13-year-old girl's science project was used by the White House to figure out a pandemic plan? Uh, is it true? You know, it, it felt like it, it, it reads like fiction for the first 60 pages. And the reader, there's nothing to really clue the reader that it, it isn't until you get to the Bush White House and they're figuring out how to deal with the pandemic. Uh, and they're trying to write a plan. Um, but yeah, it was total pleasure to write. Um, total pleasure to write. And the... Uh, so, such a pleasure, right, that I worried when I was finished that I would never want to write a book because it was so much fun. No other book could, could be so much fun to write. That's crazy to me because uh, your eagerness shines through and I am very eager to read this because it must also mark the evolution and growth of you as a writer and human being. I assume that you don't think you're the same writer you were when you wrote Moneyball or even Liar's Poker. And so to have this, you know, the crisis of our times here land on your lap with characters that you're going to be able to again, Michael, because I'm guessing your sense of humor is wait till you get a load of what a shit show all of this was. Wait till you get a load of how this could have all been prevented and people don't know if it's fiction. It's going to read like fiction because just like at Wall Street, just like in sports and now just like with government agencies and the world response to this, my guess is that you're arriving at more and more stupidity that you can only laugh while writing it as your wife hears you in the other room because you can't <laughs> believe we, uh, we're we so stupid and you've grown enough as a writer to write a book about the crisis of our times. I've gotten better with the characters. The characters, I've given the characters more life in this than maybe any book I've written. And 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 it is, yeah, there's stupidity in the system. The characters, the characters are fabulous and like they're not stupid at all. It's it's similar, you know what's similar? The book is similar to the big short in that what it's setting out to do is describe a really complicated broken system. In case of the big short, it's Wall Street, the financial system. In, the, in this case, it's the system of public health in the country, um, the preparedness for this sort of catastrophe. And, and the way it's done is the same way it's, is, is finding these characters who you might think are peripheral, but actually have the best possible view of, of the system from the inside because of their experiences in it. And they aren't really like, telling you about the world they're showing you about the world about the world through their actions they, they they aren't just saying oh you know subprime mortgages are a house of cards and they're going to fall apart no they're betting their entire hedge fund on the thing it, or no um communicable disease is a much bigger problem than the country realizes they're not just saying that they're actually fighting on the streets communicable diseases you don't know about multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, measles, HIV. And, and you're seeing the, you're seeing this, these little battles that are kind of a, um, a, a hint of the bigger war to come being fought before the war starts. And this could tell you how the war is going to turn out. And anyway, the, the, I what's I've become more confident drawing the characters at the same time that the characters were just unbelievably generous with me and also took the incredible risk of letting me just into their lives without having any control over what I did with it. 
Uh, so it ended up, it just ended up magically. I just, I, and I knew, you know, it's funny thing is I knew, so, you know, you never control how a book can do. The book's done great, but, but I thought it was going to be the best selling book I've written by a factor of three. I thought it, I, I, because I thought everybody is going to be talking about the pandemic. It's a, this is a weird story, but it, it's right in the middle of the, of the national conversation. And what I underestimated is just how dreary people find the whole subject and like, do I really want to pick up a book that has anything to do with this? So it's been a little hard to get to the audience in the way I thought, but in the end, the movie will take care of it. Well, I think, I think there is going to be a movie. Of of course there will be. I I think though that people will be surprised to hear you taking joy from the premonition of pandemic story when I'm imagining not just the dreariness, but I'm imagining that all, that the characters in your book are noble characters that were that were trying to it trying to do something and and rich characters and that people reading it might not understand that your work, whether you're spending time with Obama around uh, the nuclear suitcase or whether you're deciding your curiosities are going to take you to Mike Leach because you want to write a magazine story about how he's able to create more passing yards than anyone ever. I imagine that this book is not a work of fiction in any way, that you just take the liberties you can so that people don't get into a lot of trouble, that you, you can hide in the fiction when what you're doing here is journalism. So so I didn't mean to suggest I was inventing anything. Uh, in fact, I don't have to take any liberties. I didn't have to invent a thing. It's all drawn right from life. My point was that the reader, because they won't know who these people are and the, and what they're doing and what's happening in the act, in the real world, what happened, was so incredible that they, they they won't believe it. They just, they'll think this is, so, it's a great story, but he must be making this up until they get to the point where they realize, no, he wasn't making this up. This is actually what happened. And uh, it, it's that feeling. It's that, it's that's, it's like what's, and that kind of like uncertainty, is this real, is this not real? I felt went really well with the pandemic. The pandemic felt to me like, is this real? Is it not real? There's this unreality that we've been through the last couple of years, uh, this disorientation. Um, I'm trying to kind of recreate that a bit. Uh, but but it, it's, it is, I, I just can't deny it, that it was just so much fun to write. And it was an odd feeling thinking this is fun to write because it didn't seem like a fun subject. And then I realized what's well, fun to write because the people I'm writing about are, are just electric. I mean, that when you, at some level, when you're handed really great material. It almost doesn't matter what it's about. If the material is that good, you just get excited. And I was just excited. I was, I wrote, I wrote in a, just in a state of thrill for six months. What would be your answer to the trait that you have that makes these degree of difficulty things because your subject matter can, your choices are weighty and can be hard and if you're going to pour yourself into one of these choices my guess is you're at least a little bit meticulous about it but maybe you're just intuitive can you explain to me or or the audience how it is that when you're choosing this subject matter with great degree of difficulty you're able to make it look easy um so i think it starts with just the right amount of fear of failure that i'm not paralyzed by the fear of failure but I have a lot of it. Uh, and so like, it keeps me on the edge of my seat. It keeps me working and like digging. Like I wanna make sure this works because I, I, in the back of my mind, it's just horrible if I don't make it work well. So holding myself to like a standard because I'm afraid of what happens if I don't meet that standard 
really helps. Um, the, I think the other thing is like, I, every time I write, write something, even though I, look, writers are writers, books, even really successful books, reach a very narrow slice of the population. They're not like movies or TV shows. Um, but I'm able to delude myself into thinking that I'm addressing the whole world when I sit down to write. And I like, so it, it, it elevates the level of like the stakes of the game. And it's, it's a stupidity. It's a naivete. Like I'm not The whole world's not going to read my book, but it feels like to me, like they are. And so that gets, that sort of, again, raises the level of stakes, try forces me to raise the level of my game, the actual doing of it. Um, I don't, I mean, this is going to sound horrible. I just don't find it that hard. That uh, it, it, it is hard to find the right material, like the right subject. Like it, it, they don't just walk in the door every day. Characters you want to write, situations that you want to write about, ideas. But at, the, but at this you point, to, you know, right? And when you see one, you know, you trust your intuition yeah, on that. Yes, trust you. I trust my in instincts on it. But once I'm in it, I, I don't find it, it's not that it's not work. It is work. You got to rewrite, rewrite, write, rewrite. That's the, but, but it, it's not that. hard hard to do it. I, I, and I'm, I can move pretty fast and it's fun. As I say, fun to do. I'm sitting there laughing at myself while I'm doing it. So, um, I don't, and I met, I, I always imagine my reader to be really smart and ignorant, which is not their fault. Uh, my, my, my reader is my mother, you know, it's like, there's no reason she shouldn't understand the financial crisis. There's no reason she shouldn't understand how a baseball team is run, even if she has no interest in baseball. Um, and so I try to talk to that person. It isn't, it's it's not, and, and I try to remind myself, nobody cares about me. That like, it's not how smart I am. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, let's make this really transparent to the person who's gonna read this so that they too can have the thrilling understanding that I've achieved by hanging out by these people who with these people who actually know stuff. Um, so I think that if there is, it, it, it's, so you know what it is? I hear, I bet here's, here's the bottom, I bet it's something like this, that what makes it easier for me than maybe some writers. I'm not afraid of my reader. I mean, I'm always surprised when someone does, when someone responds negatively to something I've written, like they get upset or think I'm think I'm full of it or I made stuff up when I didn't. I mean, things you get accused of all kinds of stuff. You imagine um, what I've gotten in sports. Do you imagine why yeah, our no, relationship? Do you, why do, what do you think our relationship with the audience is a little different on writing? I mean, since I've been 20 years old, I've had the people who came after you with Moneyball. Every last yeah. one of them. Hell, I was the media advocate. They were coming after me because I was yeah, supporting yeah, Moneyball. Yeah. So, so I never imagined that when I'm writing, I, I always imagine the reader is my friend. You know, I don't, that I'm, we were, that, so, so I think fear of the reader, it, it is paralyzing to the writer. It, that's, that's how you get really dreary academic prose, really careful stuff where, where you're worried about being found out or worried about making any kind of little mistake or anything that might seem like a little, little mistake, even though it's not a little mistake, uh, because the reader's out to get you. So I, if I felt that way, I probably, I just wouldn't write. 
I'm kind of writing for like people I love and I, who I assume love me. Well, and, and who you want to share the secrets with. Like you're, it, that's right. It, the reason it's a delight is because you're like, listen to this. I get to be the storyteller on these things that you did not know. Isn't this interesting? Like I, yes. it, it, that's why it's a delightful process for you. I just can't, I don't understand how you arrived at a relationship with all of it, where you combine fear of failure, you combine, now you're Michael Lewis, accomplished author, and every one of your books carries the expectation of, well, this is gonna be better than the last one, right? Um, yeah. Like, I don't know how you wrestle that alligator in a way that is the gentle. Close, the closest emotional slash psychological experience that I have ever had to writing a book is pitching a baseball game. That when the when they gave me the ball to go out and pitch in high school, and uh, that my mother was always in the stands, and I it I I was I assumed the fans were rooting for me, but it was sort of like okay, give me the damn ball, I'm gonna go win the game, and it's gonna create great pleasure for all the people in my life. <laughs> it's 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 sort of like so so there is a, it's like this is a moment where I'm telling the story. I've got the ball, I'm in control of the game, and I'm gonna make it work out all right for everybody. Um, so th there's that edge of like, oh shit, if I fail, that would be bad, we'll lose. But then there's this feeling like people are cheering for you. Uh, and there's this feeling of just like solitude and responsibility. I'm here, it's my game, I'm gonna take control of it. Uh, and um, it, it's a very similar feeling. And my high school coach, it's funny, he sent me a poem Years ago, a he was yeah, he was great, a poem called "The Pitcher." Uh, years ago, that by a, a poet named Robert Francis that drew this analogy between pitching and writing, um, and he was absolutely right. It was like it's exactly the same thing. I was good at that, in the, for the same reason I, I'm good at this. That I like that moment. I like having the ball and figuring out how to take control of the game. I was going to ask, I guess it's, uh, you answered it, but how good a pitcher were you? Because you, uh, if, if you like that feeling, that's what real confidence sounds like when you, uh, can go to that moment and feel like you've stacked enough successes on top of each other, that you know, you're good enough that your standard is the highest standard. When this, when your books meet your standard, I'm guessing you're not getting a whole lot of editors who are saying, Hey, Michael, this is shit. <laughs> so my my editor my editor at my publishing house who's been my star lawrence who's been my editor since 1988 um he says he says you're like he, he compares me to a self-cleaning toilet uh he, he said I, I don't really need to fiddle with your pros because i know that if it bothers me it will bother you and you'll just fix it uh that he he's very helpful on the level of like talking about the story but it is true that I don't really need, I need, I need help with editors, but it's, it's on the conceptual level. It's figuring out what's interesting. It's, it is, it isn't on the level of the, of no, once the you've turned it in, you know, it's good enough. This is the thing. Once you've turned it in, you know that, you know, maybe, maybe you get four bloop singles out there and you lose two to one, but you know that when you're turning right. in the book that you've got the game in your hands and what you're going to throw, people are expecting a gem and you're going, That's, you feel like you're going to give it to them. So I know what it feels like to, th to pitch a, a really good game. And, you know, you do walk out sometimes you walk out and you just don't have your best stuff and, or the mounds a little funny in high school. That was always the problem. Like the mounds, the wrong size, <laughs> uh, and you're just throws you off or you're uncomfortable in some way. So sometimes it's like that, 
but sometimes it, you, it, but I don't hand it in until I feel like the difference between pitching and writing is you get to do it over and over and you get to fix it. It's like, so if you, if you, if you take me out of the ballpark, I, I get to put you back at home plate and pitch to you again until I get it right. Uh, so th- you get the, you do have a do over in writing that you don't have in, in sports. Um, but it's, it is that I do have that feeling like when it's right, I don't worry too much in my mind. I don't worry too much about it being wrong, uh, but it's some, it takes a little, some take, take a while to get it right. But once I feel it's right, it's, I'm not really worried that, Oh, it's really awful. Is there a writer uh, you envy? No, there are writers I really admire. Um, and there are every now and then I'll come across something where I'll think, God, I wish I had that material. Like that would have been a cool story to walk into, but they're writers I love. Uh, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like envy. I know what envy feels like. I don't really feel that in my writing life. I feel it in other aspects of my life every now and then, but, uh, but no, um, there, um, there, it's fun to like other writers and it gets harder. You know, the older you get, the more critical you get because you spent, but basically because you spend your day fixing your own mistakes. So you pick up someone else's book and your first response is, well, I'll fix this first sentence. <laughs> it's shame about that. Uh, instead of just enjoying it and taking it for what it is. Um, the, uh, but, but they're still, it's a, it's, they're still writers. I pick them up and I just love them. Uh, Dave Eggers, the, he's out in San Francisco where I am. Yeah, he's great. Um, he's great. He's just great. Uh, uh, and, 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 and he's gotten, uh, forgive, I don't remember the title of a heartbreaking work of staggering Staggering fiction. genius. Staggering yes. genius. Uh, yes. He's gotten a lot better since then. Yes, he, yeah, I agree. Jonathan Franzen, Michael Pollan. Uh, I mean, they're, they're um, a couple of younger female writers who I've just become very enamored of recently. I, they're New Yorker writers. Casey Sepp, Maria Konnikova. Who are working in this tradition of, you know, it's pretentious to call it literary nonfiction, but that's what it is. It's nonfiction, nonfiction that's aspiring to do a lot of the stuff that fiction does. Um, that and they're very clever at the way they've gone about it. Um, so it, it's 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 I really like liking other writers. Um, it it it's a little harder to do as you get older. It has not been for me as it regards his work, because I really do admire what he has done with the form. I'm telling you that you should check out the new season of his podcast, Against the Rules. Witty, tell the people why it is that you love this podcast, because he's bringing, I imagine, some of the same thorough reporting. Like, really, I mean, obviously, Michael's a great writer, but I, I, I just love that the next sentence might surprise you because it has reporting in it that you did not know. So I imagine Against the Rules would which I have not yet consumed is something that has a lot of that in it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've listened to the show from season one, and I was just kind of fascinated that you know him and Malcolm Gladwell are combining on kind of working on these sorts of podcasts, and they tell stories incredibly well. But I was really interested. Like, I'm sure Michael, you were given the proposition of doing a series of a podcast and rules and the way in which we break them or they form our society was the subject that you wanted to tackle. So it was more, I guess, the the, the subject matter than the matter. I mean, obviously the podcast amazing but i was just kind of fascinated that this is what you've wanted to tackle we you know the title just kind of got slapped on it after the fact uh it was that the idea an idea is still the idea was to like find 
take these roles in American life, these characters in American life, and um, that have been kind of volatile, authority figures especially, and take explore in a single season the roles. So first season was about referees, second season was about coaches, this season's about experts. And each season is seven episodes, and it's kind of cut each each episode is it's a bit like a long form magazine piece. It's written. It's not just me talking to somebody. It's 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 a script, and the, the scripts look like TV scripts or movie scripts uh, when they're done. So I am writing it, um, and it's to me it, it it's been it's been a it's been a gas to do, and and it's it's done a couple of things. One, it's gotten me to a bigger audience than the books get to. Um, it's and it gets to an audience that's different than the books because different people listen than read. Uh, but two, it, it's it's forced me to exercise, and I think you see this in the premonition in the most recent book. It's forced me to exer- exercise literary muscles that just the written word on the page doesn't force me to exercise. When you're writing for the ear, like for people to hear, uh, it's a different. It's got it's a different emotional receptor. It's it is more emotion. It's more emotional than the eye on the page. Oh, be careful! So you- be careful, Whittingham. Michael Lewis has now developed a curiosity about the intimacies of how podcasts relate <laughs> inside the space of of head. That the listener, it's so much more intimate than reading. Look out, Michael Lewis is going to come for everybody's podcasts next no, because no, no, he's got because you know that writing writing for this audience that that can't see you. That you're taking yeah. on a ride that is different from the one on the page. Uh, what a cool way for you to grow as an artist on storytelling to be able to do it this way. It must be great fun for you. It's totally. It's a, that's exactly what it's like. It's like cross training. Uh, it's a, it working these different muscles that then feed back into the books. And the other thing is, it, you know, it is a bit like being on stage. That when you're talking uh, to an audience, and there isn't there is actually a physical audience when I'm when I'm recording the podcast, uh, you can see when you're boring them, or you can see when they're not laughing at the joke. You can see, and, and so it forces you, it just disciplines you in a way that you're not disciplined when you're just sitting alone in your room scribbling. Um, and I like that too. I, it's not, it's never gonna be a substitute for the book. So it, it just rubs up nicely against the books. It's like, I do, after the book, I do a season of the podcast, and I'll do another book, then another season of the podcast. Oh, but you just articulated the difficulties I have in my relationship with writing and why it is that I do what I do now. This part is shared and performative. The writing part is hugely, hugely fulfilling, but ultimately it's just your wife hearing you laugh in the other room. That's exactly she, right. Like, it's so it's so goddamn lonely, no matter how much fun you are having <laughs> masturbating at the computer because That's you love the sound right. of your own words. Like, like um, yeah. that, it's yes. just not a shared experience. Um, That's right. That's true. That's completely true. It's a shared experience in only in the sense that I'm. It's shared with the people I'm writing about because I, I am spending a lot of time. I have to immerse myself in their lives, but they're not sharing the writing of it or, and participating in it in, in any way. So it is. That's true. Against the Rules is the name of the podcast, the paperback release of the book, The Premonition, a pandemic story. You can hear how excited he is about it. Uh, Michael, it's always good catching up with you. Uh, Thank you, sir. Thanks, guys. Thank you, you, Michael. We'll see you down there. I'm going to knock on your door. Um, You have my number now. Yep. Bye-bye. Now is a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. 
and 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start, same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB, the CV, copyright 2024, Proximo, Jersey City, New Jersey, please drink responsibly.